Good morning, church. Oh, it is so good to be with the people of God, with the Word of God open this morning. It's a joy um, to get to start a new sermon series this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, uh, I told folks at prayer night, all the T's are in alphabetical order. So if you go to our Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or General Electric Power Company, and then right after that is the T's. They're in alphabetical order, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to dive right in because we're introducing a new series and uh, going through chapter one together. So First uh, Thessalonians was one of, if not the first letters that Paul ever wrote to any of the churches, depending on the date that he wrote Galatians. It was written in A.D. 51, and so this is just about, just shy of 20 years since Jesus ascended to the Father. And uh, he started this church by the power of God in a pagan culture in Thessalonica, and I think you'll see a lot of similarities, even if not overtly similar um, to their worship of Greek and Roman gods. You'll see that a lot of the uh, similarities in terms of the, the culture that the gospel was coming into. Um, so I've got a map, actually, that we can put up on the screen to give you guys a picture of where Thessalonica was in Greece at the time. And so we are up in the top left-hand corner. Thessalonica. It was a port city that was known as the metropolis of all of Macedonia. So uh, it was historically at enmity with Rome, the Greek and Roman empire, the Greek empire giving way to Rome. And eventually they enjoyed favor st favored status from Rome because they acquiesced to the emperor. And so they had benefits like not being occupied by Roman troops because they were a good, a good city. And so Rome gave them special favor, special uh, status. The Roman Empire functioned on a patronage system. It was patrons and clients. And so uh, Thessalonica was basically clientele of all of Rome. And the whole society functioned off of favors and people being funded and receiving benefits from people who uh, were in favor with Rome. Like Philippi, it was situated along the Via Ignatia. And so because of that, uh, Via Ignatia was a major east-west route that connected Rome to the furthest eastern reaches of its empire. And so this city, being a port city situated on this major thoroughfare in the Roman Empire, had massive economic and political and religious influence in the rest of Greece and in all the empire, which we will see. And so in addition to being steeped in this patronage system, they also were steeped in a pagan culture and the imperial cult. So the religious cult of Rome was sort of the roll up of these two things of uh, people worshiping the emperor as God and receiving favors from Rome in the midst of uh, going along with the worship of the empire. They had idols for everything. Um, I read more than 20, probably a lot more than that. And feasts and rituals for all of them. It was a very superstitious society. So they had gods for 
uh, growing crops and gods for keeping them safe as they went out on the sea. Um, And a number of deities enjoyed special prominence in Thessalonica. And I'm noting these so that you can see the kind of culture that Paul was coming into as he was preaching the gospel and the kind of place that the Thessalonian church grew up in and lived in and sought to be a witness in. So a couple of these gods that had special prominence in Thessalonica were the Kabiri, Dionysus, and Egyptian gods. So just to note sort of the lewdness and the exhaustive nature of the worship of these gods, the the Kabiris was one of the uh, twin heads on the ship. So Paul sails on a ship from Samothrace, and there's this twin statue on the head of the ship, and they were said to give safety to sailors in the midst of really dangerous waters. And uh, this was one of the main gods in the city of Thessalonica, and the male reproductive organ was featured prominently in the worship of this god. People had statues all in their houses everywhere, and the worship of this god was extremely licentious, just like the other prominent god, Dionysus, who was the god of fertility and wine, and so drunkenness and sexual immorality were pervasive. It was part of the culture. It was part of their worship. It was part of being a good Thessalonican. It wasn't as much about the fear of these gods, but finding gods that would satisfy the lusts of men, and it was prevalent everywhere. Uh, those who worshipped Dionysus were said to become possessed by the God himself. So we know, ultimately, there are no other gods, but just so-called gods, and it was the worship of demons. But this demonic worship was everywhere throughout Thessalonica, and um, that Roman patronage was over all of it. So Paul, in the midst of his second missionary journey, you can see, is going out from uh, Jerusalem, and he travels through Asia. And in Acts 16, it says the Holy Spirit prevented him from speaking the word of God in Asia for a time. And so he came to Troas, and there he gets this vision uh, in the night of a Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. And so determining that the Holy Spirit was calling them uh, from the red region to the orange region, they went immediately to Philippi. And despite much violence in Philippi, they saw a church planted in the power of God there. And uh, Paul goes on from Philippi along the Via Ignatia to the city of Thessalonica, which was this bustling metropolis and the idolatrous capital of the Macedonian Empire. And so if you keep a finger in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 and flip over to Acts 17, that was our, that was our context. That's your intro to uh, where this gospel is breaking in and where this Thessalonian church was. So now we get to the good stuff, the scripture part. Acts chapter 17 and verse 1 says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. 
But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so Paul is sent away quickly. In the night, he gets to Athens. And from there, they continue their missionary journey, preaching the gospel in Berea and in Corinth and on the, on the way back home in Ephesus. And during the latter part of this journey, so what the journey that's recorded in Acts 16 through 18, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. He had to flee them in the midst of persecution. He had to leave quickly. And so he is writing to them to encourage them and to exhort them in holiness as they endure with hope all this persecution that they're receiving from this city and as they wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus. So that brings us to this letter that Paul writes to them. He's still on this journey as he's writing to them, probably writing them from Corinth on his way back home, and he is eager to check in on them because he's heard amazing things about what God has done in their midst, and he's writing to encourage and exhort them. So before we read this, let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts. Father, we thank you so much, so much, that you have given us this word. Lord, I've been praying all week that you would make us a Thessalonian kind of church. So Lord, would you come and do what seems pleasing to you? Would you come and work in your power and in the Holy Spirit and bring your work in us to a full completion? In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So Silas and Timothy traveling companions of Paul, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is going to be a good a good study. I have to get through that in one Sunday. So 
What a feast. So what I want to look at uh, in our brief time together is God's work, Paul's work, and the Thessalonians' work. I'm going to break this chapter down into, so God's part, Paul's part, and the Thessalonians' part. Now, when we say that, God's part is every part, right? But my good friend Stephen Whitmer says, we do some things, God does everything. Even the things that we do are empowered by the grace of God. But first, I want to look with you at God's gracious activity in the lives of the Thessalonians as the gospel power broke in and rescued them. First, we see it in, so if you're, gonna, if you're note-taking, we look at God's work, election, redemption, and revelation. Election, redemption, and revelation. First, before the foundation of the world, God set his love on a people to redeem them as a people for his own possession. In Ephesians chapter 1, a passage you know well if you've been in this church for any amount of time. What a glorious description of the love of God as he sets his love on his people before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 verse 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So before God made the world and everything in it, he set his love on this Thessalonian church. Before he created anything, he had the Thessalonian church on his heart and in love he predestined them to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself so that God's grace would be praised among the church and among the nations and among us. He determined to rescue them before he sent his son into the world and gave them a gospel to believe. Before the gospel was ever at work among them, God was at work in eternity past in electing them and calling them out for himself. It was not because of works they had done in righteousness. It was not because he saw among Thessalonica, who among all these idolatrous rabble will stay away from this idolatry? And I'll call them out to myself. It wasn't because of works that they had done in righteousness. It wasn't because they were holy. He saw them who they were going to be, and he loved them anyway and called them and set them apart for himself. And then he set into motion this redemption that while they were yet sinners, while they were strangers and aliens to the covenants and promises of God and alienated from the life of God, he sent Christ to die for them. So God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and brought about this great redemption. And then God raises him from the dead, highly exalts him to the highest place where he is enthroned on high and ruling until all of his enemies be made his footstool. And he's coming again to judge the world in righteousness. This is the message that they believed on. It says that they turned from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. But God had raised him from the dead and exalted him at the highest place before they had any idea. 
And so they had desperate need of not just this electing love of God and God working this redemption in Christ, but God sending revelation so that they could see this gospel and be made new by it. Jesus died and rose for them, and they, like many in our town, had no idea. No idea in truth. And so, in addition to sending his only son for them, God sent preachers and missionaries to gather his people from among the dead. This is how God moves. This is how God works his salvation. God, is there any doubt in the room that God can completely rescue people by himself without involving us? But in his design, by his goodness, he invites his people into the work. I was reading in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, God says, this I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will let you ask me. I will let you pray and be a part of the work. And then there's this valley of dry bones and God asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these dry bones live? And then what does he do? He tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the dry bones so that they would live. He doesn't say, son of man, watch this. He says, son of man, you speak to the dry bones. And so God calls preachers to go into all of society where it's idolatrous and it's wicked and there's anti-God posture everywhere. And he sends you because he loves them. He will have his people. He will. So God when Paul is in Troas and he's trying to preach the gospel in these other places, it says the Holy Spirit prevented them from preaching the gospel in Asia. Not long term, just in the moment. You know why? It wasn't because he had anything against Asia. He had a people. And he sent Paul to go get them. So he shows up by a dream in the night. A Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. And so how will they hear without a preacher? And so God sends Paul and his companions into Philippi and then into Thessalonica with the gospel. And Paul says that God called you and chose you before the foundation of the world was so evident when we got there because of the power that the gospel came in with. It wasn't met in a place where we preached it and then we had to dust off our shoes because you wouldn't have it or you wouldn't hear it. You received the word for what it really is, the word of God. He'll say in chapter 2. Remember in Acts 17, verse 4, it says that when Paul proclaimed Christ to them, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. This is what he's describing now, saying the gospel came to empower and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says in chapter 2 that we thank God constantly for this. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. So how the gospel came in with them became a model for Paul praying later. Pray that the gospel would go into this new territory like it did among you. He's asking them to pray for it because... The fact that it came to them in such power was not a tribute to the righteousness of the Thessalonians, but to the grace of God at work among them. God was powerfully at work. The gospel was a power of God for salvation, preached by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And it came with this word full conviction means it came with a full completion. 
that God accomplished his intended purpose in them when the gospel came in power among them. And all of this, all of it, was a work of God and his grace. God gave them the gospel to preach. He sent the men to preach it. And the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the Thessalonians was him graciously giving them a humble faith to drink in the good news of the gospel when it came to them. And it brought them to life with power. It was all the evident work of the unstoppable and electing love of God. So we, we know from Paul's other writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about, or 2 Corinthians chapter 6, excuse me. Uh, he, he talks about, oh man, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Sorry, it's not my notes. I'm, I'm trying to recall it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Scribble, write, scribble, write it down again. He says, God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, shining in the face of Christ Jesus. So what happened at creation? There was darkness and void. And then God said, let there be light. And in the place of nothing, there was life. That is what happened here among the Thessalonians. There was nothing but sexual revelry and drunkenness and pursuing the lusts of their flesh and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made them alive in Christ. By grace, they are saved. It's like Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3, verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is what God has to work with. There's no one else to rescue. There are people who are foolish, disobedient, slaves to various passions and pleasures. So as you look out at our town and you think, I don't know how God could do a work here, this is what he has to work with. It says this was us, but what happened? When the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the gospel breaking in in power. Foolish, disobedient, enslaved to our lustful desires and pleasures. And God breaks in with mercy and says, you are mine. I loved you with an everlasting love before the foundation of the world. And you can't escape this. And he justifies us by his grace. This is God's design. This is God's work. That he would call people from among uh, a idolatrous and wicked people redeem them and make them new and send them back into the world as missionaries to go get more. And the thing is, I'm, so I want to rejoice in this with you for your own life. And if you've yet to place your trust in Christ to, to call you to repent and to turn to him like the Thessalonians did. But I tell you this, not just for us to rejoice afresh in the grace of God for our own lives, but to have a fresh faith for what God can do in a culture, in a society where it looks like all hope is lost and we are so busy looking at the circumstances around us that we think something is too hard for our God. And so maybe 
You've had some experiences sowing the seed of the gospel, and you've been met with hardship and persecution, and so you've started to sow less. But what we see here is we don't know who the Lord our God has called to himself. We are called to sow the seed of the gospel indiscriminately, lavishly, so that we can watch God work the miracle as his Holy Spirit works with power and brings a work to full completion. So that's God's working. And he also worked through Paul's working. Paul's working, or the missionary's work. Don't want to leave out Silas and Timothy. So the missionary's work, conviction, and proclamation. So this verse 5, the same verse that says that the gospel came empowered in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, also says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. It's not a new idea. It's not a new thought. There's a connection in the original language between this idea of the gospel coming with full conviction and the kind of men that they proved to be. Paul dives how they lived among them more in chapter 2. So we're not going to spend a long time here, but I don't want you to miss this. He's not changing the subject. The life that Paul and his friends lived and the kind of men they proved to be among them was part of the proclamation of the message. It was not a disconnect. We have saw this a lot in our vessel series, that we want to be clean vessels available for the master's use. And so the gospel came in power, not just because it was confirmed by the Holy Spirit, but because it was brought by men whose lives were consistent with the message that they proclaimed. That God designed for the gospel to be proclaimed through personality. People whose lives have been transformed by the gospel and who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is why Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, his protege, and he's teaching him how to be a minister of the gospel. In chapter 4, verse 16 of 1 Timothy, he says, Keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It was not a tangential issue, the character of the messenger, the life of the messenger and the message, that God designed that the message come with power from the Holy Spirit and through clean vessels. The vessels aren't powerful. Paul says, look, this treasure of the gospel is in jars of clay. I didn't come to you with persuasive speech. I want your salvation to rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. But his life did not contradict the message. He lived imitation worthy so that they could look at him and follow his example as he was preaching the message. Paul says this often. He said it in every church and he said this often in the writings that he sent to the churches. Listen to what a powerful statement this is. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Not two different things to imitate. He's saying, you became imitators of us, and as you were imitating us, you were imitating the Lord. Because he was on the road of conformity to Christ in front of them. So when they lost sight of Christ, they could look at Paul and follow him, knowing that they were headed towards Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes to them in verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. 
That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child of the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul is teaching everywhere in every church, not just the ways of Christ or the righteousness of Christ, but he's teaching them how to live it out in flesh and blood. And he embodied faith in Christ to people and said, follow me as I follow Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or Philippians 3, 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So there's this picture of this road of conformity to the image of Jesus and the goal is Christ-likeness. Now this road, we, you and I are journeying on and you may make it 1% or 2% of the way there and then when you see him face to face, he brings you to 100 in a moment. But our calling which is completely glorious. It says he's going to finish the work that he started in you. But our calling is to press on into conformity to the image of Jesus now. And Paul's saying, follow me as I follow Jesus. And there's other people on the road, he tells the Philippians. So follow those who are following my example. So there's this huge road of conformity to the image of Christ. And there are believers along the road and you're to line up and follow them. Follow those who walk according to the example that you have in the Apostle Paul. Paul and his companions modeled what he exhorted to the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're called to proclaim this gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel that you are called to proclaim. You are ministers of reconciliation. May your life match the message so that the gospel comes in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction because you know what kind of people we prove to be among you for your sake. So the gospel came, power, and the Holy Spirit, and with full completion, and it came through faithful missionary servants who had surrendered to God's work in them and had surrendered to obeying him and being used of God as transformed servants to proclaim this message everywhere. And then we have the Thessalonians part, their work which was reception and imitation. Paul says over and over again, you received us, you received the word, and they received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In chapter two, verse 13, it says, again, you received the word for what it really is, the word of God. I pray that often over our church. I pray it often at the beginning of our messages. It's probably not new language to you, but this is where it comes from. This is the word of God that we're in this morning. It is so amazing that God has condescended to reveal himself to us. And by the grace of God, they received with meekness the implanted word, which was able to save their souls. There was a humility before God that received the word of God for what it really was. And it was all God's doing. But what stood out to me so much, was so amazing to think about, is that Paul only preached among these people for three Sabbaths. And this happened in them. Now, we've been here for seven years now. So what I've been praying for is that this would stoke our faith in what God is able to do. 
so that we wouldn't just grow content with the quasi move of God while we have busy lives doing other things and we don't have with fullness us playing our part of receiving the word with humility and meekness. See, God's going to do his part. The electing love of God, he worked redemption for us in Christ. He is revealing himself and sending missionaries. He is. And so our part is to imitate Paul and to imitate the Thessalonians, that we would be able to say with our lives, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You became imitators of us and of the Lord and that we would go into a place where there's rampant idolatry and wickedness. You just got beat down and imprisoned in the city before you go right into the next town and you say, there is another king and his name is Jesus. And people come out. And you you find in the midst of all these towns where we go and proclaim this truth that these men who were turning the world upside down, they weren't going to places where they just thought they would have the welcome mat rolled out for them. They went into places where they knew that, Paul says this, the Holy Spirit's revealed to me that in every city, imprisonment and beatings await me. But I rejoice in the opportunity to suffer for his namesake. And so they go into the hardest places. They just experienced persecution but they went to proclaim Christ where he was not named because they knew God had revealed it to him in a dream. I have people in the city that I've called to eternal life. It's the same thing he told us when we got to Brattleboro. There are many people in this town that I've called to eternal life. Go get them, son. Go get them. And that's what he's calling you to do. That, so I've been praying that the Lord would stoke our faith that you wouldn't just see this as Man, this is just a great reminder that God had mercy on me and that he rescued us and that he's coming soon so we could just kind of hold on. Well, in the midst of holding on, let's get to work. Because he put you here as missionaries so that you could go to Brattleboro and they would say, these people who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And so if they're not saying that, then why are they not saying that? Do they know with your life and with your message? Because Paul says our gospel came to you not in word only, but in power. Has our gospel come to them in word at all? So this is where we find ourselves praying, right? We're stuck praying, God, help me to be bold with the gospel and to give them words and not just a life, right? Some of us say, well, I'm trying to share the gospel with my life, with my example. We want to go beyond that and say, God, please give us boldness and give us the words to say yes. But when we are there, you know what we need to be praying? Not just that we would have the boldness and the courage to speak, but that when we speak, that the words would come in power. So Paul's Paul's speaking. It's not, he's going to. He'll write to the Colossian church and say, pray for us to speak with boldness. But the issue for Paul wasn't he was going into all these towns. He was going to live an exemplary life and, and model for the believers how they should walk. And he was going to proclaim the gospel. And so his prayer is, I'm going to preach the gospel. Pray that it would go forth speedily and be honored like it was with you. And so they're a model for us 
a reminder to us, a vision of what God can do. And they received the word of the Lord, and they received Paul and his companions, and they left everything at the preaching that there is another king whose name is Jesus. They left everything to follow him. And don't miss how costly this was. They lived in the midst of a culture that thrived on the worship of the emperor and playing game with Rome, where you had comforts in life based on this patronage system. The reason why they freaked out in Acts 17 that there was a message that there was another King Jesus is because it was going to jeopardize their favor with Rome. It could put them in bad standing. It could call up formal rivalries before they had made peace and actually have Rome clamp down on them. And so they're thinking, we got to squash this uprising. So the church had this persecution on them. It looked like political persecution, but it was actually religious. It's a lot like what we see today. So religious persecution guised as a political move to which we say, there's another king and his name is Jesus. We must obey God rather than men. And so they saw, just like Moses saw the surpassing worth of Christ rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, they saw Christ as worth leaving everything rather than enjoy the comforts and sin of Thessalonica. And they did so to serve the living God. They imitated Paul and his friends. They imitated other churches specifically in how to respond in the midst of persecution. And I think sometimes we think, man, if we didn't live in such a hard place and we knew that the word was going to be received with readiness, then I would be a lot more bold with the gospel. But the issue here was it was going to be met with, they received the word with much affliction. He didn't just say you received the word with affliction. It was in the midst of much affliction. It was costly to become a follower of Christ in Thessalonica. And it was costly to be a missionary. And Paul gives the example and the Thessalonians give the example of here is what God can do when his people called by his name become obedient from the heart to proclaim Christ in the places where he has sent us. And he calls forth the people to life in the midst of much persecution. And so it says they turned from their idols to serve the living God. And he describes at the beginning of the letter what that service of the living God looked like. It looked like a work of faith and a labor of love and a steadfastness of hope that he rejoiced in. We can't spend long here, but this work of faith, they, they lived out an obedient faith. They went from rampant idolatry to allegiance to King Jesus and obeying him in life. And the swing of, of the radical transformation that Jesus brought to their life caused that faith to sound forth everywhere. People could not believe the transformation that Jesus was bringing to this small group of people in Thessalonica. And word spread rapidly along the Via Ignatia and along this port and everywhere because the transformation was so miraculous by the power of God. They had a faith that was outgoing. It wasn't, they didn't just come to Christ and then hide. They came to Christ and started spreading the aroma of him everywhere. And they were afflicted and persecuted much because of it. And they did it anyways. He says to give thanks for your labor of love. This labor is a toiling. It's a love that sweats. It's a love that gets to work, loving God and neighbor. And this is our calling, to faithfully labor until Jesus comes. 
In Revelation 14, the Spirit of God, it says, Blessed are those who die in the Lord. The Spirit of God says, Yes, blessed indeed, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. That's awesome. He's saying they're so blessed they can rest from their labors, but until that day, we labor. We get after it. We get to work because Jesus is worthy. And there's coming a day when he says, I see your weary toil. He finds us laboring faithfully, serving him faithfully when he comes. Not unworthy stewards who said, I didn't know the time of my master's coming or we hid our talent and buried it underground, but ones who multiply on it, who steward it. And then he gives us his promise. Your works will follow you. That's awesome. He will reward every man according to his work. And so it's to us now to get after it, to have a faith that works and is outgoing in a love that labors and sweats because there are people who God has chosen before the foundation of the world in this town who have no idea. And the proof that God has called them to himself will come as we are obedient to make Christ known and we don't grow weary in the good work that God calls us to do. And the way that the Thessalonians were able to do this as a fledgling church, as newborn Christians, was that they put all of their hope in the promised return of the resurrected Christ. So this is where the steadfastness of hope was. It says that you, you turned from idols to serve the living God, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this is where a lot of this letter and the, both letters to the Thessalonians are going to center around this return of Christ. God is coming and he will pour out his just judgment on the world for their disobedience to him. And right now he is offering pardon and mercy in the son who is raised and enthroned over all. And he is coming back to judge the world in righteousness. And the Thessalonian church set their hope fully on the revelation to be brought, on the grace that's to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is how believers are described in the Bible. Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's transferred your citizenship to heaven, and all of our hope and our eyes are fixed there because he's coming soon. Hebrews 9, verse 28, Christ will appear a second time to save who? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's a description of believers. These are the people that he's going to rescue. Those who are eagerly waiting for him, who are longing for his return. So what's the result? What's the result of God's work and Paul's work and their work? Well, it's a vision for us. Praise to God as his word and their faith sounded forth everywhere. So what happened? This was the fruit of God's working among them and Paul's working among them and them responding with a humble faith is that the word of God and their faith spread like wildfire. Paul said that when he went places, when he says we have no need to say anything, he's not saying I don't have anything to say to you because he wrote a whole letter. So that's not what he's saying. He's saying when I get places, I'm like, hey, you'll never guess what God did among them. And they're like, we've already heard. It's amazing. Their faith had sounded forth everywhere in this church that went from 
rampant idolatry, didn't know about Jesus at all, came to Christ and was, had such a miraculous move of God in three weeks that they became examples to the church of God all over Greece. This word for examples means it comes from the word to strike. It means like a mark or an imprint. And figuratively, like in this sense, it means a pattern to follow. But it's interesting that this word for pattern to follow comes from this word to strike or to imprint. It's the same word that Thomas uses in John chapter 20 when he says, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, then I will never believe. So here's this, this mark, this imprint, the same imprints that were left by the nails, that kind of imprint. And so you get this picture that the Thessalonians were formed into an example to follow. They became like a template to follow as they were put on the image of Christ and in much affliction, God was beating them into a mold. It wasn't just that the gospel spread through them in spite of affliction, but because of it. That in the midst of much affliction, they became an example for all the other churches who were sure to experience and encounter affliction and persecution in every place. And they became an example. This is how we respond in the midst of much suffering. Suffering. This is what serving God looks like. This is what a faith that works look like, looks like. This is what a labor of love looks like. Here's what it looks like to hope in Christ in the midst of much, much affliction and to continue to make him known. And so they were an example to churches all over Greece then. They were an example to thousands of churches over thousands of years since then. And they're an example to us now. So Eric and Jesse, I want to invite you guys back up. As we conclude, so what do we do with this? Well, one, I just want us to glory afresh in the grace of God, at God's grace at work in you in salvation. He rescued you, not by works that you did in righteousness, but by his great love with which he loved you. And you can't escape that. He sanctifies you with the same grace that he rescued you with. And so as you walk with him now, rest in the grace of God toward you in Christ. But I've been praying too that we would have a fresh faith for what God can do, what he wants to do, what he's willing to do through a church that's surrendered, to a church that prays together. Church, our prayer nights are proof by themselves that we don't really long for God to work here or that we don't understand how he works here because if we understand that God invites us into the work and that he allows us to ask him but that he will not work apart from his church called by his name seeking his face and asking him then it's proof by itself that we're just kind of content with our salvation and maybe picking up a few friends here and there. But what if we sold out and received the word of Christ like the Thessalonian church did and we went out and scattered it abroad and fed it with much corporate prayer and we said, God, we will not rest until you move here like you moved here. He wants to. You think he loves Thessalonica more than Brattleboro? 
what if Rivertown became an example? Because we didn't hide from persecution anymore. And we didn't avoid sharing the gospel because we kind of assumed how it would be received in the midst of a pagan culture. But instead, we saw what God did here and we said, God, we trust you and you're the one who has called people from before the foundation of the world and you've called us to be witnesses so that they might come to life. It's not on you to rescue your friends or your coworkers, but it is on you to be a missionary. And it is on us as a church to be the house of prayer that God has called us to be. And anything less than a prayerful missionary people is disobedience. And so we need to take our eyes off of ourselves and off of the things that so easily entangle us from a pure devotion to Jesus. And we need to repent and fix our eyes on Jesus and be refreshed and reminded of what God can do in his power through an available people. This is a question. So God's calling us to live lives and have a, me- a message that bear witness to the truth that there is another king whose name is Jesus. He wants to use our lives to turn our world upside down. So the question is, where can you not say, imitate me as I imitate Jesus? So you ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart, God, where am I not living an imitation-worthy life? Where if there are believers sort of behind me in their walk with Christ, where could they not follow me and grow closer to Christ? And wherever that is, repent. Repentance is a gracious gift from God. He brought you here this morning or he has you listening online so that you can have this gift of repenting and surrendering afresh to be a clean vessel and available for the master's use. Let's set our hope on him. Let's receive this precious word for what it really is, the word of God. And then let's get to work. A work of faith and a labor of love where our master who is returning soon will find us faithfully laboring in his name until he comes. I'm gonna leave you with this benediction that Paul has at the beginning of his next letter to the Thessalonians, chapter one, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may himself fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.